Welcome to the Corporate Treasury 101 podcast. Today, we continue our series on counterparty risk management. In the previous episode, we discovered that counterparty risk and its management is critical for the different companies. We also dove into what are its sources. We talked about what due diligence is and pre-trade assessment. We explained credit risk and the role of rating agencies in counterparty risk management. And therefore, in the episode of today, expect to learn why it is important to constantly monitor counterparty risk, even after years of relationship with a third party. What are the measures that can be taken in order to prevent this risk? The importance of setting limits to your exposure, what exposure is, and much more. Like always, we really hope you will enjoy this episode. If that is the case, and if it is interesting, why not sharing it with a friend? Maybe you can have somebody learning about corporate treasury and share the insights you've learned. With all that being said, let's get on with the show. So again, once you've defined out the credit rating of a company and you have all this information that we've already discussed, right? You've done all your due diligence, you've looked at environmental factors, you've done your counterparty risk assessment. How do you ongoing monitor the risk and manage the risk exactly? Because I guess... Yeah, you, you, everything is kind of just a prediction at this point, and then you go into the deal. But as yeah. time goes on, you need to make sure none of those variables that you measured have changed, right? Maybe, um, for example, the environmental factors one could change all of a sudden. And so, so what? How do you manage it ongoing exactly? Yeah, that's a, a very good point to touch upon. So. Um, it's indeed rather common to run a pre-trade assessment, right? When you enter in a new relationship with a counterparty, because that's the thing to do. But counterparty risk management uh, indeed also means looking at your current ones. And a company being healthy uh, from a financial standpoint five years ago doesn't mean it still is the case. So when you do your pre-assessment, it's all good. And then one or two or five or 10 years afterwards, it's not the case at all anymore. Therefore, you want to regularly update the data you have received in the first place when you did your due diligence. And you want to constantly analyze them, monitor them, and assess the credit risk, and so forth. So this will indeed help your company by providing early warnings of potential defaults and allowing for proactive risk management measures to be taken. What are the KPIs, Guillaume, <laughs> that you measure as you go along? As a consultant, I'm sure you love the... Exactly. When you get corporate like this, that's awesome. So it really depends on uh, what you are looking at. Let's start with purely financial projects, right? Because this is really highly linked to counterparty risk management, but we will, of course, make the link with uh, the companies and the corporates. So in the case of financial product, you can increase the collateral requirements, for instance. What, what do you mean by collateral requirements? It's such a fancy term, right? Yeah. So... When Treasures you, love your fancy terms. Yeah. <laughs> Simplify it. Come on. We have to make it complicated, right? I was always wondering. Otherwise, I don't get the low people. <laughs> exactly. So you can say, you can get a big fee to uh, explain what it is. 
So let's look at what happens when you take a load with Sam. And let's say to finance your car. The institution providing you with a loan can consider that you will repay your debts and is just relying on your upcoming salaries. You look at your uh, pay slip and they're like, oh, this guy is uh, quite well off. He will repay the car for sure. That's fine. Or they can be a bit skeptical and say, look, we're happy to lend you the money, but we will take the car as collateral. Meaning, if you don't repay, we take your car and we sell it in order to pay back the loan or the remaining amount to be paid. And this is typically the case for mortgages, for instance, with the house as collateral. For financial products alone, for instance, you can ask the company for its stock as collateral or other assets they may have. So you write into the loan that um, you're asking for cash right now as a loan, which is fine, but um, you have this asset which is worth something. Um, now, you don't want to sell that asset. Yeah. So in case you cannot pay back your loan, you need to give me that asset. I'll sell it and make my money back that way. Correct? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And this okay. is what we call leverage, right? You have assets that you don't want to sell, but you want the money linked to it so you can use it as collateral to leverage debt and more money to invest in other projects. But that's important. So you can take collateral. What other measures can you take to manage your counterparty risk? So you can obviously renegotiate the terms of the contract. So let's uh, stay in the case of a loan for now. Uh, you can review the interest rates, right? You can, as a lender, set them higher because the risk of the borrower has increased uh, and therefore you deserve more return. Or you can actually reduce them so it's easier for the borrower to repay and the lender is more likely to get all its money back. You can also have a look at the repayment periods. It can be shortened, right? Or extended, depending on the strategy you want to adopt. Shortened to make sure, okay, I want to get my money back as soon as possible because this gets risky. Or, okay, this counterparty starts to be unlikely to repay me. How about I give him a little bit of, I cut him a little bit of slack, let's say, and I extend the repayment period so it's easier for him or her. Uh, and of course, you can have a look at the amount, but that's usually the last metric you want to touch upon because what you want is to recover all your amount. We did our payment series, Guillaume, where we talked about yeah. different forms of payment and whatnot. What, how does that fit into this? What about the payments? Yeah, absolutely. So for those, you have multiple things you can play on. First one is you can ask your clients to pay you faster, right? Potentially upon delivery and not after 30, 60 or 90 days anymore. That quite reduces the counterparty risk because you do not have kind of exposure. You just say, okay, you pay me when I deliver. You can also increase your prices to reflect the risk, but that's, that's quite rare. Uh, or you can ask a third party to guarantee the payments. This is the principle of the letter of credit that we broke down in the previous series on supply chain finance. And there, there is a financial institution or a bank saying, okay, if that counterparty is not paying on time the total amount, I will step in and pay for it. You could either make it easier for the person to pay you back. That's basically what all these are, right? Yeah. It's finding ways to make it easier for the person to be able to pay you back or having a backup in case they can't pay you back. That's kind of the, the collateral route, right? So, okay, yeah. if you can't pay me back, then I just take the this asset, like a, your stocks, or you just adjust the payment terms or you potentially even reduce the price, I guess, right? Exactly. Okay, so what else can you do to, to monitor or manage your counterparty or scheme? 
Another one is, it's actually quite interesting, it's like just setting limits. You can decide that with a certain credit rating or score or for certain counterparties, your exposure won't exceed a certain amount. What do you mean by exposure? That's another fancy corporate word. <laughs> Indeed, damn, I've put a lot into this episode. That's interesting. Uh, well, well, we are 87 episodes off. Yeah, we start to be used to it, right? But still corporate treasury 101. Yeah. That'll be the next one. <laughs> <Next, laughs> corporate treasury 102, then you can start. And, and now I'm still, I still need the basics explained to me. So Absolutely. by exposure. But that's, that's a very good approach. So let's say I'm a company one of those big companies that you are now serving with the Hussam's Cafe. And I order, let's say, 10,000 euros worth of coffee delivery each month. And I pay you after 30 days, which means for every month you deliver me, I pay the month after. Between the moment you deliver me the coffee and the moment I pay you, there are 30 days, right? And for that time, I owe you 10,000 euros for that period of 30 days. This is your exposure with me. You have an exposure of 10,000 euros. In the case of a loan, a financial institution lending to Hussam's Cafe, for instance, let's say 1 million euro to help you expand your business in Latin America. Um, they lend you this 1 million euro for the period of a year. And let's say you are using it all. They have an exposure with you of 1 million euro. And depending on the financial state of your company, it can be that the financial institution lending you that money would answer no in case you would ask for more, saying, hey, look, you just invested in Latin America. It's amazing. I want to do the same for South Asia, for instance. Please lend me another 1 million euro. And here they would be like, look, Sam, uh, it's a pleasure doing business with you, but our limit with you because of your credit rating and the likelihood that you repay us is 1 million euro. That's the limit we have set for you as a counterparty. So exposure is kind of just like how much risk is on the table at that time. Exactly. Right? Yeah. So you can say, okay, I'm okay to take a risk with you to have a million in transit, but if you until you pay that back, I'm not going to give you any more. Right. And the riskier someone is, the lower that limit is you say, okay, no, you're so unreliable. I can't afford more than a hundred thousand of exposure to you, meaning a hundred thousand mm -hmm. of my money in your debt. Um, yep. Where someone else you're like, yeah, you can owe me 2 million. I know you'll pay it back. It's okay. Exactly. Right. We've always been talking from the seller yep. side, meaning getting paid, right? Yes. But I guess there's also the risk from the other side. You pay someone to give you a good or service and it doesn't come, right? Is that, that surely should be, that's a counterparty risk as well, right? That's the risk of another party. A hundred percent. That's on point. So indeed, you could also set limits, right? Because what does it mean, a counterparty risk with your supplier? You basically order for 1 million euros worth of raw materials. Um, but what happens if that supplier doesn't deliver or not on time or partially? Uh, then you cannot run your business as you are intending to. So here you can also set limits, especially when your suppliers ask you to pay upfront, for instance. It's not often the case, uh, but can happen in particular at the beginning of a relationship or in certain industries. And in order to mitigate it, you could also decide not to order for more than a certain amount and get the rest of your raw materials or whatever from another supplier. But that's indeed part of the counterparty risk. So it's like you have multiple suppliers in case one fails. Exactly. Right? So you can always get from another one. So you like diversifying suppliers. 
Exactly. And that's the other the points I wanted to touch upon, Sam. Um, like in portfolio management, uh, when you invest your money on the markets, a common advice you receive and that you see is do not put all your eggs in the same basket. Is that a, is that a correct expression in English, right? Don't put, yes, indeed. Yeah. Awesome. And this advice is uh, very much applicable in the counterparty risk management sphere. The more clients you have, obviously the less impactful one failing to pay you is unless it is one of your biggest, of course. And same for the suppliers. If you have 10 suppliers that can more or less provide the same service or the same product at more or less the same price, well, you can very much mitigate your risk by uh, ordering a little bit from all of them. Now, uh, in counterparty management, there is also the aspect that you want to be an important client for your suppliers. So if you just split in 10 your business with 10 suppliers, you will actually not be a big client for any of them. So will you have favorable payment terms or prices? It's less likely. So it's all about managing properly your risk with your, well, financial contracts and contractual terms. Okay. There. What else can you do to mitigate your risks in the scenario as a, yeah. as a buyer? So... We've talked about netting, right? Uh, this constitutes a full-blown episode on this show. And if you want to check it out, it is episode 63 to 66 with another amazing guest. But we talked mostly uh, in this episodes about intercompany invoices netting. But in the case of uh, financial transactions, and let's say uh, if two computer parties owe money to each other, you can net the aggregated financial contracts into a single position, meaning... Let's say, Hussam, you are a financial institution A and I am financial institution B. Because of all the dealing we do with one another, I end up owing you 100 million euros, for instance, and you owe me 150 million euros. Instead of creating both a big gap in our cash flows, you propose me to simply send me 50 million euros. And we have netted the position of both our account payables. You have to have a relationship with a supplier. That is both ways, right? Indeed. And it's a bit trickier to put in place, but it can happen um, that your suppliers are also your customers. Well, first of all, depending on your business units, for instance, if you are a big multinational company, maybe a business unit has a supplier uh, for certain raw materials or certain services even, but another business unit of your own company is selling to these suppliers and this is a whole virtuous circle. Likewise, uh, within the same company, it can be that you vertically integrate. So you start as Hussam's Cafe, you have your cafe in Brussels, but soon you own the whole supply chain, right? And you're like getting uh, the coffee beans from the company you bought that is producing coffee beans. Uh, you have the, let's say, logistic company that transports the coffee. And then the suppliers of your company can also be your customers within your own company. And then you can easily net some invoices. But this is very particular, I admit. That's nonetheless a technique that can be used. Quite niche. Um, you haven't mentioned hedging at any point here. I thought that's what hedging was, Guillaume. It was all about um, having some sort of risk uh, management to an external. We talked about hedging in terms of FX and interest rates, for example, but could you not hedge somehow in this scenario as well? Very much indeed. So we talked about hedging uh, when we mentioned um, and we talked about financial risk management and FX and interest rate risk management. Um, but it works in the case of counterparty risk management as well. It is quite specific though and mostly 
applicable for financial institutions, a bit less for corporates. Uh, but what can be put in place, for instance, is the use of credit default swaps, futures and options. We have already tackled what futures and options are in our episodes 9 and 10. Uh, so there is quite an extensive definition of it out there. And for credit default swaps, um, it's basically providing protection against the risk of default by a borrower, such as a company or a sovereign entity. So against a certain amount of money, you get protected in case a company defaults. Okay. Basically, financial instruments have been made by third parties like banks to basically create some sort of hedge. That will very much be mostly in the case of financial transaction between financial institutions. But let's say, for instance, I mean, it's very unlikely to happen, but why not? You are a big, I don't know, uh, building producers and like you build massive building, industrial sites and so on. And you contract with a country in Latin America, for instance, like the government of this Latin American country is paying you to build schools, hospitals, whatever. It's quite a massive and juicy contract, so you want to do it. But also, maybe the economical situation of this country is not very, very um, safe. and It's quite risky for your company. And you're like, okay, I'm going to contract a credit default swap for the amount of, the, of my business. And if that country or government defaults, I get my money back. This is quite of, a, of an example, but this is how the mechanism would work indeed. Very clear. And, and that thing would obviously cost you something, right? So if it did go through well, you'd still pay the fee for having it in the first place. Exactly. I don't know if, uh, have you seen the, the movie, The Big Short, Usam? Yes, exactly. I was going to say exactly that. That's what the, um, that's how Bill Barry hedged against the mortgage, subprime mortgage market crash. They bet against the real estate markets as a whole. And they say, look, this will, uh, this will collapse. It's a bubble. And this is what happens. And they contract, uh, they put in place credit default swaps indeed. Mm-hmm. Like that. So much easier when Margot Robbie explains it to you than... than yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I might have, had, and have the, the, the sexy voice at least, no? Uh, indeed, the, <laughs> the French accent, definitely. Ah, well, it plays a bit very good at least. Thank you very much, Kim. Thank you, Seb. <laughs>